No one else has any other excuse. <laughs> All right, so I'll just pray for Joanna and woohoo. <laughs> God, I thank you for my sister. I thank you. It's like I prayed for her this morning in pre-service prayer. Lord, I thank you for her vulnerability and how even when things don't go well, rather than run from you, she just runs closer. So I thank you for the example that she is to us, and I thank you for the work that she's done on preparing this talk. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and just breathe life into everything that she says, and that um, she would be blessed and not drained, and that we would be blessed as well. So come, Holy Spirit. Again, let us have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying and what you are doing. Mm -hmm. Amen. Hi, guys. Okay, Rick and Kim and Dean and Kaylee, you're going to have to move closer or something. This is insane. Like, <laughs> yeah, move over there or something. I don't know. Thanks, Kenny. This is great. I love it. Thanks, Rick. How much money do you think it would take me to get the Naumans off the back row? A lot. More than I've got, I can tell from Dean's face. More than I've got. More than I've got. Thanks, Rick. So, uh, so we're, we're beginning our series today. We've been talking about it for a while. We've been getting, you know, talking about getting books and, and getting ready. And, uh, and we're going to start, which is good. And just in case you missed it, we have, we have some fill-in-the-blanks notes on the back of your bulletin. It's a little participatory. So if you'd like a pen or you don't have a bulletin, just put your hand up. Bob and Anna, do you have pens, Bob and Anna? Do you have some? Okay, they'll share with you. Just as a way to kind of interact and hopefully put stuff in your brain. So on our weekly email this week, I don't know if you read that, but I, one of the things I said was that we were going to be talking about the topic, God is good. And I, boy, I really tried to prepare and work that in. But the deal is, is that um, God is good is actually chapter two of this book. And chapter one is pretty important. And it's really chock full of a lot of information. And the more I worked this week, the more I just wrestled and wrestled and went, I don't think I can do both chapters justice. So I just, I had to make a decision without Gordy. I got to tell you, it wasn't easy, but I did it. And, um, and so you will be hearing about the fact that God is good. He is still good all the time. <laughs> without irony, the Good Friday service this year, this amazing, I don't even know, was he Filipino? Pastor Joseph? He totally was like, everybody, all together, God is good. And I, was, I just said to Jessica, I don't think I've heard anybody do this without irony since the 90s. This is so awesome. And everybody said, God is good all the time. And then he said, all the time. And everybody repeated, God is good. But they were so happy. And the people from Joy Fellowship were so happy. It was awesome. But you're going to have to wait. I think probably May 17th when I'm scheduled to teach next. We'll talk about God is good. And the good news is, is that we're hearing about all the other facets of God's character. And this book is set up in such a way that we're studying different facets of God's character throughout um, the next coming weeks. And the order of the, the way that we study those facets of character don't, doesn't really matter. But I do think it is really important for us to 
look at the first chapter, the beginning of this book, because it essentially sets up the premise or the manner in which we're going to be talking about these facets of God's character for the rest of the series. So today is really well and truly going to be the intro to the series, because that's, I think, what we needed. Um, one of the things that Gordy had been doing the past few weeks before he left was he'd been sharing with us what he was calling his pastoral midrash, right? His message to us as a church. And there was lots of stuff in there. But does anybody remember any of the things that he was charging us with or encouraging us to do or encouraging us to be? No idea. Kenny's like, I wasn't here. Don't ask me. There was a lot of stuff. All about love. Yeah. So that's what he said. Loving each other is going to be the most important thing. The biggest fruit is going to be how we love each other. He talked about being um, a, a particular type of community. Anyone remember that? A serving community. So how do we serve each other? How do we love each other? I have such good news for you. This series is actually going to teach us how to do that. <laughs> it's just practical, super, step-by-step. This is, this is how we figure that out. It's great news. So, um, oh, I'm supposed to be doing my own PowerPoint. We'll see how this goes. I can't, uh, I have to talk with my hands, so I don't know how this is going to work out. Oh, this has gone right back to the beginning. Let's see. I'm going to, Wade, can you come help me with this, my darling? Thank you so much. Always marry your tech support. It totally works well. Um, and so, you know, yeah, we have some hope here. The good news is we're not going to be trying and striving and just doing, gritting our teeth in the hopes that we can force ourselves into godliness in the next little while. But this series, the whole purpose of it is for us to actually be able to examine our thoughts, examine our actions, examine what makes us tick, and, uh, and invite the Holy Spirit into our community in the hopes that we'll become more like Jesus together. So I'm hopeful about that. Um, a little bit of background for this series. The gentleman who wrote, um, we're, we're going to be going through this three-book series this year. Um, and, and the author, his name is James Brian Smith. His friends refer to him as Jim in the book. And a little, <laughs> Jim refers to himself as the Forrest Gump of Christianity, which I, I love that title. He essentially says, you know, Forrest Gump was this guy who's in this book and in this movie um, where he, he, he's a character that winds up with these incredibly pivotal historical figures at all of these moments in history. And, uh, and Jim Smith says, that was me. I was this utterly average guy. I was literally number 300 in a class of 600 people. I was, um, had no idea what I was doing, and I signed up for a class at Friends University with this guy named Richard Foster. I didn't know anything about Richard Foster other than the fact that I had a class with him at 10.30 on Thursday mornings. No idea that he wrote one of the most pivotal books in, you know, the last hundred years of Christian history. It's called Celebration of Discipline. It's this fairly well-known book in Christian theological circles, in just Christian circles in general. And what he didn't know was that Richard Foster had been praying for somebody to mentor. And Jim Smith wound up babysitting Foster's kids and hanging out and having dinner with him and just becoming friends with him and being mentored by him and influenced by him. And then Richard Foster introduced Jim Smith to a guy named Henry Nowen, who those of you who know anything about Christian thought and theology, again, 
pretty well-known guy, he's penned about 100 books, <laughs> very pivotal thinker who was a professor at Yale Divinity School. He went on to give his life to serving um, uh, disabled people and was completely moved by it and wrote about it and yeah, became, so Jim Smith was like, then I met Henry Nouwen. Then I started teaching a class and a guy named Brennan Manning signed up for one of my classes. So Brennan Manning is, again, wrote this book called The Rag and Muffin Gospel. He said it's a little bit like having Einstein in your math class. Um, just this total genius guy. And then, um, and then who was the other one? Oh, and then Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard, who again is a very well-known Christian author. He wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy wound up becoming a teacher, and he said, I sat in and co-taught this class with Dallas Willard. I did it for 10 years every summer. Dallas Willard was the main teacher. I figured out that I've sat under about 700 hours of teaching by Dallas Willard. So it's a little bit like if you decided to become a basketball player, and you just happen to become friends with, you know, Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. Come on, I'm not good with the sport ball. Somebody else give me a, another name. And who else? Yeah, those guys. It would be like that. But this guy, sort of, I was this totally average guy, and he said one of the things that happened was that I would talk with Dallas Willard when he was writing his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and Dallas Willard would say, there has to be a curriculum for Christ-likeness. There has to be a way that you could make a how-to course. And Jim would say, is that even possible? Do you think that could be done? And, and Willard would say, yeah, of course it could be done. And so Jim would say, why, why don't you do it then? And Dallas Willard's answer was, because I think you're supposed to do it. <laughs> no pressure. So years later, he started developing this course, this idea of developing a curriculum for individuals and groups. And he kind of test drove it with all these different people. And one of the things he emphasizes a lot is he says it really works better in groups. And one of the key things that I'm going to be sharing with you in a minute is one of the key factors of Christ-likeness and figuring that out is how we function in community. So um, one of the things I just want to go through with you is what he lists at the beginning of the book in talking about how to get the most out of this series. So the first thing he suggests is that you get a journal. If you're not a journaling type of person, that you try and get even just a notebook. Um, something to just scribble stuff down. It's just a good way to process thought and bring it to church with you. Or if you have a small group that you're attending, you're going to be talking about stuff with your small group from this book, bring it to small group and use it in your quiet times. If you haven't already got the book, get the book. If you can, we can, it's easy to order off Amazon or you can put that on your connect card that you need some help in getting that. And we can do that if we, if you need some help with that. And then every week there's exercises. So we're going to talk about that. They call them soul training exercises. So there's actually a copy on the orange paper of the exercise for this week in your bulletin. Don't look at it now. Don't look at it yet. We're going to look at it later, but I'm telling you, you already have the copy for it this week, so it's all right. Don't worry about it. You're going to be able to do that. And then the idea is to make some time through the week to actually reflect on those exercises. So to try and set aside some time and write in your journal or go for a walk or ponder and meditate and look at the different questions. This week, one of the things I've done as our um, reflection questions is I've just taken the questions straight from the book. So during, as you're, if you're reading the book, as you read through each chapter, he's got reflection questions right in the middle of the chapter as you're reading along. So every time he brings up a new thought, there's a reflection question right there. So if you instead are choosing to mainly access the series by going through the weekly sermons with the speakers, 
I don't know if other speakers will do this. I'm going to suggest it couldn't be any easier as a teacher. The questions are already there. So the questions that I've put down today are just the ones that the author suggests in the book. So if you have a chance to go through them, and they're also written on the back of your bulletin. And then the idea is that we're going to get more out of this the more we put into it. So if you can prepare and, and, and come with the intention that you're willing to share or talk with somebody else or be in a group or be willing to talk about it and process it, the more you're going to get out of it. It's like that with anything in life, I think. And then he also really encourages that one of the great things about our easy access to technology these days is that we can actually just, you know, if you have a conversation with somebody either at church or at home group, just shoot them an email or a text or a quick phone call even. Or better yet, go for coffee at some point during the week and check in and go, so how's that thing going that we talked about? How's that working out for you? So the more that we can interact with each other through the series, the more we're going to get out of it. The whole thing is designed to go through together as a community and to be walking through it and processing it. So there's ways, and, and of course there's still going to be benefit if you're not in a small group, but if you decide you'd like to be, again, as we already said during announcements, please just fill out a connect card and we'll try and see if there's a way we can connect you. So that's kind of the, the how-to of the best way to get stuff out of there. So we're going to go to our filling, filling in the blanks now, if you have a pen. So what I like, I like a lot of things about what I've read so far in this book. One of them is that I feel like, um, oh, wait a second. No, we're not quite there yet. How do we get the most out of this series? Okay, great. So one of the things that, if we're going to talk about this idea of having a curriculum of Christ-likeness, it begs the question, first of all, well, how do we actually become like Christ? How is that, how is that possible? How is that even a thing? Um, and what I so appreciated about the first chapter of this book is that one of the things that Jim Smith talks about is the mechanics of how we actually change as human beings. And he talks about our will. And he says a lot of times we really think that change happens in our lives because we just have to summon the will to do it. And if we're really trying to change and we fail or we haven't done it, we think, oh, man, I'm just so weak. I'm just so weak. I tried that thing again, and I just can't do it. No matter what I do, I can't give up. And one of the things that he says that I really resonated with me and I actually found really encouraging was he said, our will actually doesn't have any power at all, one way or another. The will is simply a mechanism of choice that resides in our body. Do, we, do I wear the red shirt or the blue shirt? Do, you know, the will itself doesn't have any power. And he says the, the will is like a horse that has a rider. And the rider directs the horse as to where it's supposed to go. But he said the trouble is instead of just one rider, our will has three riders. And that's our mind, which obviously when we think our mind creates emotions, which then lead to decisions. He said our bodies is one of the things that directs our will because, I don't know if you're like me, when I get hungry, it's really hard for me to make any good decisions because if my body is not <laughs> well fed, when I'm fasting, it's really brutal. It's really hard. And, and I think there's a number of other things. We have desires in our physical bodies that we want. And then our social context is one of the riders of our will. 
You know, people call that peer pressure or whatever the perspective is, but our community and the people around us and the context that we're in manipulate and direct our will as well. And so the good news is you do not have a weak will. That is not why you can't change. You also don't really have a strong will either. It's kind of neither here nor there. You, we simply all have thoughts and emotions and bodies and social contexts that direct our things and we have the ability to make changes in those areas of life. And so change is possible. And I just found that incredibly simple and quite a refreshing way to think about things. I thought, I feel like that resonates with me. Um, it just says, you know, our will just has one job. Our will just does what we, what the rider tells it to do. And then that's how we make our choices. But uh, it's kind of harder than that, and it's a little bit more complex, and we'll get into that. But the idea is that we develop new ideas, and we develop new practices, and develop new social contexts, then our behavior and our choices are different. Um, just have to think about where to go next. This is one of the things that I think has been so successful. Anybody that I have known that's been really involved with AA or NA will talk about the basics of a 12-step program. And much of the 12-step program involves these facets, which are thinking about principles of thought and the way that you have th thought about things, looking at your social contexts, and also looking at your body and your body's needs and desires. And I feel like that really resonates. I mean, I feel like it resonates with me personally, just in this, I mean, he said, he was talking about New Year's resolutions in January, that they're broken by the end of January, and that was totally me this year, probably more than any other year in my life, where this January, I was like, you know, I'm about 20 pounds heavier than I want to be, and I am really, I'm going to do something about this, and I signed up for this group, this weight loss group, through friends on Facebook, and you had to pay money, and you had to send your measurements in, which felt kind of vulnerable, and you did this whole thing, and it was this secret group, and I thought, I'm going to do this. And I know this sounds kind of weird, and it's a slightly vulnerable thing to share, but that's the watchword that's been given to me several times, so here you go. There's more vulnerability for you. So I, so I felt quite vulnerable doing that, but I thought, no, this is going to be really cool because I know some of the women in this Facebook group, and they're friends of mine that I've known through missions that I really love, and I want to connect with them, and I'm really looking forward to doing them this with them. I feel like that will be great. And then I wasn't allowed to be in the group because I wasn't overweight enough. And as weird as it sounds, I was right on the line. I was like within one pound or two pounds of being technically overweight from my height because I'm really tall. And as odd as that sounds, like I said to Wade, I'm too, I'm not overweight enough to be in the group. And he was like, is that not a good thing? <laughs> and I was like, I, I guess it, it is a good thing. But that's not how I felt. I felt like, oh, this social context, this group that I was so excited about being a part of has just told me that I can't belong. And I really like crashed and burned as far as doing anything. And then I hurt my knee, and then I hurt my hip, and then I couldn't run. And then I also, my social context is that I live with a man who cooks food all the time like really good food. And then he'll say things like, were we watching TV at night? And he'll go, you know what I want to eat right now? Candied bacon. And then he goes and makes 
candied bacon at 10 o'clock at night. Come on, if someone brought you candied bacon in bed at night, would you not eat it? So this is why I'm 20 pounds heavier than I want to be, but I totally am happy to own that because I'd rather have that moment of sitting with this person. I really like, man, if you've never had candied bacon, it freaking rocks. It is so good. But all that to say, when I was reading this, I went, I have been telling myself that my problem was that I've just not been strong enough to lose this weight. And every time I eat something, I've been telling myself that it's a matter of willpower, and I actually have had a really brutal, negative inner monologue about it that's been really kind of depressing about my lack of will and how weak I am around the whole thing. So I have to tell you, I was so stoked when I found out that I don't have weak willpower. I simply have some thoughts that I need to change, and so I don't know if I want to change my social context. I really like my social context. But uh, there's some things that I have to work around. So that is really step one of your fill-in-the-blanks, is step one to changing ourselves and becoming more like Christ, is that we need to change what the author calls our narratives. Now, this is a word that has been bandied around a lot in smart people thought circles in the last little while. But what's a narrative? Somebody tell me what a narrative is. What does it sound like? It's a story. Mm-hmm. So we, as humans, we are storied people. We relate through story. We remember story. We want to tell each other stuff about story. There's, um, it, you know, we remember story. That's one of the reasons why Jesus taught primarily in stories. Like, I can't recite to you all the Beatitudes, but I can tell you the story of the prodigal son. And you're probably the same way. And so one reader suggests that narrative is the central function of the human mind. He says... We dream in narrative, in story, thinking out a story. We daydream. We remember, anticipate, hope, despair, believe, doubt, plan, revise, criticize, construct, gossip, learn, hate, love, all by narrative. Does anybody else ever have imaginary conversations when you have a problem in your life? Well, I'll be like hanging up the laundry. Well, I could say to them, I would say to this person, this is what I would say. I would just say, listen, I really didn't like when you go. Sometimes my, my kids caught me. What are you, who are you talking to? Nobody. I'm just imagining in my mind what I would say to a person. <laughs> right? So we all have narratives. We all have these stories. And we all have stories that have been told to us through our lives from different contexts. So we all have family narrative stories, and, and sometimes it's not even, because I said, I was reading and talking about this with Wade, and I said, I don't think my parents ever told me any stories that I kind of shaped how that he said, no, 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 it's not stories that you get told, it's stories that, that you, what you've lived. Um, and he said to me, you told one the other day. So what do you mean? When we were hanging out with Miles and Karen, and we were t- you were talking about home and owning houses, and how your mom came from England and she immigrated, and your family got transferred so many times that your mom never, ever, ever even tried to make places home. So you lived in all these places that sort of felt temporary, and she didn't talk about it. It was all action, and it wasn't until years later I was really struggling. And we had lived in the same neighborhood for 10 years, and I thought, why don't I feel at home? Why do I feel a visitor everywhere? And then I really started praying at it and looking at it, and I realized that I had this false story, that I was never at home anywhere. 
And during that time, I wasn't doing any work outside the home. I was staying home with our kids full time. And um, God spoke to me about what it meant to be a homemaker. Not just a homemaker, but a homemaker. And what does it mean to make home? And that was something that came purely out of a narrative that had been lived out in front of me, even though nothing had been said. And we all have stuff like that. We have narratives in our culture. One of the most interesting books I've read, I think, ever, was a book by an anthropologist called Our Babies Ourselves. And it's all about how when people have babies in different cultures, there's all these ideas about right and wrong, how much you pick a baby up, how much you hold it, should the baby sleep by itself, how soon the baby should walk, you know, should the baby have a soother till they're four, should they not, how long should they nurse, but all of these things have such strong connections in culture to value. And as North Americans, we tend to value these cultural stories of our settlers who were these rugged individualists who kind of broke off and discovered things. And, and we, we do have quite an individualistic culture in North America. And that even comes through where if you are a parent, you'll sometimes have questions like, you know, oh, does your baby sleep through the night? And are they, are they walking already? Are they talking? Do they drive a car? How soon are they going to go to college? And you're like, well, we... <laughs> We thought we'd let them get their first word out first, you know, it would be great. So anyway, that's a little bit of my bias there. But that comes through. And then we have religious narratives, right? How we understand who God is. And that comes from all different places. And in our church, we come from a lot of different streams of Christianity, the vineyard being quite a new movement. We all come from a lot of different places. There's very few of us that grew up in the vineyard church. And as we have conversations about how we see God and who God is. We have to look at what those stories are because um, these narratives that we have in our brain, they're running our lives. Or in some cases, they're ruining our lives and we don't even know it. We don't even know that this is the the story because our, our family narratives tell us who we are and why we're here and whether or not we have any value. Um... One of the awesome narratives that I realized I got from my mom, and she was visiting last time, I've noticed that when my children get up in the morning, um, she greets them and makes eye contact with them in such a warm way. But the other thing that I've learned about my mom as an adult is that she's not a morning person. But you'd never know that when she's around kids. Um, but as an adult, if I'm with her at, our, at her house, she does not turn the lights on in the morning. She does not want to make eye contact with people. She wants to do her book and do her crossword. She does not talk to anybody. But if my children are there, she is sit- she's a, like a different person. And I realized that I got that from her, that when our kids get up in the morning, and it's changing now the little bit that Soph is older. She gets up a little bit later, and I, I have to be a little bit more casual in how I greet her. But with Pax and Eleanor, and my mom does the same. She's British, so it's so awesome. She'll, they'll come in the room, and she says, Hello. Hi. How are you this morning? Did you have a good sleep? Oh, that's great. Like, and just assigns value to them as soon as she sees them first thing in the morning. Just sees them and assigns value to them first thing in the day. So these things come through in all these different ways. So as you're thinking about what your narratives are in your life, don't just think stories that people told you. Think 
stories that people lived out around you that you picked up. And so this is what we've talked about because once we figure out what the narratives are that are running our minds, then we can measure them against Jesus' narratives. Because nobody knew God better than the pre-existent eternal son of God. And when he came and talked about who God was, he showed us what the character of God is like. And so the reason why I felt that this chapter was so important and that we not brush past it is that the way that we're going to be studying each different chapter and each different topic that comes up is we're going to be talking about what the false narrative is for most people around that aspect or character of God and then what Jesus narrative is because we're holding that up as the true narrative and I thought if we don't talk about what narratives are we can't go through this series effectively. So that's why we're spending some time talking about this idea. Um, One of the things that Jesus said in his first line of his first sermon, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Well, that word repent, it's taken on a lot of connotations, but does anybody know what that root is or what that word, what that means? Changing, yeah. Change your mind. Metanoia. Change around. Look at your mind, right? Um, Paul said, This in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we have to look at our our thought life. And then this, if you really think about this, this will blow your mind. I mean, this week I thought, I just even started meditating on it when he said, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So we can have the mind of Christ about things. That's what that means. I don't know about you, but I do not feel like I have the mind of Christ about most things a lot of times. Every now and then I feel like a thought might slip in, but that to me is a huge idea. But this is what this says, that you could have the mind of Christ. So that's the very first important step in understanding this idea of following a curriculum of becoming more Christ-like is thinking about what our our narratives are. Um, The second aspect of what what we're going to be going through in this series is what the author calls soul training exercises. Now, when you think about soul train, you might think about something like this. Oh, no! How awful! No, it's all right. Never mind. We found the most awesome clip of Soul Train, which is a show from the 1970s where totally stylish disco dancers would do the best disco moves. And Wade found the coolest clip. We're going to try and find it. But I was like, come on, you can't talk about Soul Training without talking about Soul Train, man. We just had such a good time. Oh, you got it? You're so off. You guys amaze me. Okay, just sit back and enjoy this for a minute. Yeah, this is Soul Train. We'll just we're just gonna set up the center aisle one day and we'll just Yeah. Roland's gonna get his bell bottoms out. It's gonna be so good.
saw Scott Perry do that once. Just kidding. No, I never did. Yeah. Yeah. about you but I can watch that all day but it might not be the wisest use of our time so sadly this is not what I'm talking about when we talk about soul training exercises although you kind of wish it was I do think that we should have a disc we I think we need another dance party soon DJ killed okay so now it's not letting me move forward there we go okay so all right, soul training. Let's talk about for a minute what we really is. So once we've figured out what true narratives are or what Jesus narratives are, the way that the author suggests that we deepen those true ideas is by doing specific activities that are aimed at making narratives be something real. So you have to do a combination of your the mind and the body doing stuff together. And this... Um, sort of activity in the past has been referred to as spiritual disciplines, but the, the author bulks a little bit about at that because he says this is not necessarily um, a, just a spiritual thing. When we start assigning it that name, he talks about a couple of dangers in that. He says part of the danger is that if it's a spiritual discipline, we can get caught up in the legalism of it, or it can even feel like something that we're doing that's just a really good thing, that if I'm just, if I'm reading my Bible, or I'm in solitude, or I'm in prayer, or I'm fasting, it's like somehow just earning goodness or something, whereas he is very practical about it. He just said that the reason why we talk about this is that, um, you know, we're not doing these, I, these exercises for the purpose of trying to earn some reward or just make ourselves holy, but it's just trying to make thoughts come into our body practically, and that happens with training, just like an athlete does the same sort of training exercises over and over again so that you can perform naturally when it comes to competition, when it comes to a moment where the rubber meets the road. You, ha you have a, a knowledge or you have these exercises in you. You have a well of, you know, wisdom to draw in. This is what he says, and he makes this emphasis. This isn't about gaining righteousness by checking off of these great things that we're going to do on a list. They're wise things to do. They're wise practices. The first practice we're going to talk about and you're going to have for homework this week is sleeping. I know. <laughs> sleeping. Like, because it's the ultimate sign of surrender. And, and it's, you know, and he says exhaustion is the biggest block to spiritual formation. Parents of young children, I got to say amen. Your quiet time goes out the window for about 10 years. So, um, you know, it's, it's not about us all developing all of these great holy things we're trying to do. It's about developing wise practices. He says they're meant to be therapeutic in the same way that if you have an injury and you go to therapy, you're going to do something that hurts a little bit, maybe for a little while, or is kind of awkward. But the idea is that you push through it and you're doing these exercises just because you want to improve your function. You just kind of want to just get better at it. So that's the idea behind these exercises that are going to be given every week. It's this idea of just trying these practices. So that's sort of step. So step one is changing our narratives, changing our thoughts. Step two is these soul training exercises. And then step three, the idea is that we're participating in community. So that's why we're encouraging small group. We're encouraging you to talk about this teaching with people that, that you like and that you trust. 
um, to have a journal, but to be doing together because we're created for community. I mean, God, we believe that God is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and we believe that we're created to live and love in community with each other. And spiritual formation in our culture is often um, understood as this very individualistic effort, that you're going to go off and be monastic, or you're going to figure out your spiritual journey on your own. And if we look at the early church, that's not how they did it. And in my personal life experience, um, and, and I know other people's too, like if you ask Lynn, if you ask Lynn, Lynn, when was the time in your life when you went through the most spiritual formation or character formation? Was it when you were cruising on your own or was it when you were living in community? Lynn's told me many, many times about she had this season of her life where she went and lived with, was it three women? Four? Yeah. Yeah. So different community houses, and she was a part of a faith community, and she said, it just changed me. Just changed who I was. Where You guys all know we're a part of YWAM. We, we've participated in YWAM's foundational training schools. It's called the Discipleship Training School. And one of the things that I've heard Wade and our mentors say, and I really believe now, is the discipleship part doesn't happen in the classroom. Everybody comes and they go to these classes and you write stuff down. But then everybody's got work duties. And you have to share a room with people. And you have to live with people from different cultures who have different understanding of, of things. You know, and you have to do chores. And that's where the, that's where the Christ-like character stuff comes out or not. Because living in community, people tick each other off. And it's like doing church together. I mean, you know, we all love each other. We all want to be part of this community, but we all tick each other off a lot. So if we're going to be a loving community that is a serving community, we got to figure out how to live in community in a Christ-like manner. And so that's why he just so strongly encourages this, because he just says, not only do we tick each other off in community, but that's how we spur each other on. That's how we actually encourage one another. That's how we say to each other, don't give up. You're not all by yourself. It's okay. I see great things in you. You know, I need you. And the biggest thing that we can do when we tick each other off is just keep coming back and trying to work it out, even when it's hard. And that's hard work, especially for different personalities. I think for all personalities, but... I mean, I'm a peacemaker. I don't like conflict. And so figuring out how to do this well is, okay, if we're going to be a loving, serving community, then this is you know, what we have to do. So the last step um, in this idea of this work of Christ and I, becoming like Christ as a community is the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't hope to accomplish any of this without the Holy Spirit. It just becomes this great self-help program. Because the aim of the Holy Spirit, the author says, I've noticed that sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't get mentioned as much as the Father and the Son, but I've come to the conclusion that the Spirit doesn't mind. Because the Spirit's intention is to point us to the Father and the Son. And that's the whole idea. And that was what um, Gordy talked to us about in his pastoral midrash. He talked about this. The last couple Sundays, he said, the, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of the things that I've said to you. 
So the Holy Spirit's the one who points us to Jesus when we're having moments of doubt or, or, or those narratives come in or we're, we're wrestling with those new thoughts, right? The Holy Spirit is the, the part of God who reminds us of the words of Christ, reminds us of truths that other people have spoken to us. The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to lead us away from those false narratives or those things that people spoke over you your whole life that just aren't true. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to lead us towards the truth. Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. That's what we're asking for in all of this is, Lord, show us the way. How do we do this? And so this is how we come to know God as Abba, Abba, which is like daddy, father, a personal God, the God that Jesus knew, and and to know Jesus as Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit, who hopefully is going to help us through community, through looking at the word of God, through looking at ourselves into stories and narratives of what is true about who God is and about who we are in God. And all these soul training exercises, as groovy as they sound, they're not going to be of any value unless we invite the Holy Spirit in, because the Holy Spirit is the one that prompts us to pray and goes before us in prayer and prays with us and prays for us. And, and it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to operate in community at all, because <laughs> first of all, it's the Holy Spirit that has given each one of us all these gifts and all these graces. And, and scripture is clear that the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us aren't for us. It's not for us to sit around and be so in awe of all these awesome gifts that we have. They're for the benefit of building each other up. They're for the benefit of the body, the bride, right? We together, we are the bride of Christ. Look around at each other for a second. It's okay. Turn around. It's all people that you know. It's okay. It's all right. We are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. So interesting. So it's the Holy Spirit in every story in Acts that is helping the early church figure it out. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us figure it out. So the, the false narrative that, uh, that you might be living by is this idea that we change by our willpower, that we can just summon up enough strength, then we could really change. But... Um, the narrative that Jesus offers, and I, I found this wording a little awkward, but when I thought about it, I actually think it's the most pithy, uh, nutshell-ish way to sort of say what we've been saying all along, which is that we change by indirection. And what the author means by that is we do what we can, like identify narratives and try and do the soul stuff and try and watch out for ourselves, in order to enable us to do what we can't do directly, which is to say, I'm just going to be a more patient person. I'm just going to directly just be more patient. Um, but, you know, Jesus understood how people change, and I, the author suggests, and I agree, that this is one of the reasons why he thinks Jesus taught in stories. That if he just walked around all the time saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and you evil and crooked generation, if he said that every single time, I don't know how many people would have stayed around and listened for a really long time. 
But a lot of times he started by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a widow. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. There was a man, and he had two sons. The kingdom of heaven is like a king that went away. And we think and ponder, and we remember these things, but that's an indirect way of going around the outside sometimes of our minds and our emotions and kind of sneaking in the back door and saying, which son are you? How much do you believe this mustard seed could grow? What story are you listening to? I can say that that I've discovered this even sort of by accident. Anytime I get a microphone or have anything to share at all, you guys know in the last two years that I've been really impacted by the writing of a woman named Ann Voskamp. I always mention her. And the reason why is because her writing has changed my life purely from the simple practice of gratitude and thanksgiving. And she advocates that thanksgiving precedes any miracle, but she also advocates practicing thanksgiving as a rote practice, even when you don't feel like it. And as a mom at home with my kids in my house, it has made a big difference. Although it's so funny because I planned to share about this example and then yesterday I just lost my cool about it and I thought, I can't believe I'm going to share about this. And then it was like, no, I really have changed. I do have to, that's why I have to stab what was happening. But for me, I get really overwhelmed sometimes because I'm not a fantastic housekeeper. I tend to just like sort of get into stuff and make messes and then turn around and go, where did all this come from? But I also have, you know, five other people who live with me who also are these creative, awesome people who will all turn around and suddenly go, oh my gosh, how did this happen? And it's because we were doing awesome, creative, cool stuff, or somebody was building a pretend roller coaster, or somebody was doing a homeschool project or something in the living room, but then I turn around and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my mind, we just cleaned everything up! And I would really get so upset. And it was purely this practice of thanksgiving, of literally before, I felt like I was even gripping the microphone too tightly when I was holding that, to let it go. This practice of before my heart felt anything, I would say, thank you, God, that I am physically healthy enough that I can bend down and pick up these shoes off the floor. Thank you, God, that I have three children that are not in the hospital today. They are not in the cancer ward where Mason was for three and a half years. They are alive, and they are well, and they are, I, this is a house that looks like healthy children live here. They have been being healthy all over this house all day long. Thank you, God, that I have a husband that cooks. Thank you, God, that not like, because sometimes I'll be like, does he not wipe his hands before he opens the cupboards? Like what, and then it, he cooked. He cooked today. He cooked yesterday. He cooked the day before that. He's going to cook again probably three or four times next week. It's good food. Who cares if I'm 20 pounds heavier than I want to be? That man cooked again tonight. Thank God. And, but it has made a difference in my heart and in my life. I am different now about the way that I observe our house and go through the day and I get less upset. Yesterday was pretty tense. It was a pretty tense week. So I thought, can I really say that I've changed? But I know that I have. And it was just a moment. And I lost it. And then I was able to say, I'm really sorry that I lost it. Please forgive me. And he was like, it's totally cool. But that happened indirectly. I did not start out saying, my goal is to be more patient with my kids. And my goal is to be more patient and calmer about the state of my house. 
all I was trying to do was practice thankfulness. That was it. Just practice thankfulness. And then fruit came because that is the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. Gordy talked about how would we know if we were successful? How would we know if we were fruitful? We'll be fruitful if we love each other, which sounds really great in theory. But how do we really do that? And practically, we can't just grit our teeth and become patient. I'm just going to be so much more patient today than I was yesterday because today I'm going to be really patient because I'm patient right now and darn it if you kids talk to me one more time. Like it's just, ah! you know, um, you can't muster up enough willpower to be kind. Right? The nature of fruit is that it's something that develops naturally from the inside to the outside. And then it blossoms and then it appears. That is the nature of fruit. There is a reason why it is called the fruit of the Spirit. My buddy Dave once was preaching about this. We were on outreach and he was like, have you ever seen a, fr- a tree trying to bear fruit? And then he did, like, the best performance art, like, tree trying to bear fruit. But it was a lot like constipation <laughs> in how he acted that out. I'm not sure that translated over language, Barry. And I can't tell you that I'm going to reenact that much today. You know I'm a very game person, but I just don't feel like I can go there for you today. But I can tell you that it's never left my mind, the image of Dave trying to look like a tree actually trying to bear fruit. But... This is what Paul said about that in Galatians. Oh, sorry, that I've missed a reference there. It's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Let's all say that again. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Sorry, who produces that kind of fruit in our lives? The Holy Spirit produces. Thank God. God, that's not my job. I know I can't muster up the strength to do all this. I know I can't. And if you're like me, I always have to sing them to remember them all. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So everybody's, you know, if you did some Sunday school stuff. But that's the idea, is that is how we become a community that can love and serve each other in the midst of us just being all these broken, crabby, impatient, misfit toys by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. And so that's what we're going to be doing with these series. So the first book is called The Good and Beautiful God, where we're going to be looking at ideas about God, who God is, And the subtitle of the book is Falling in Love with the God that Jesus Knows. So what are our false ideas about God, and what did Jesus say about who God is? And then the next series is The Good and Beautiful Life, where we look at ourselves and our intimacy with God and our character. And then the third book is The Good and Beautiful Community, in how we were together in community. And that is going to take us till Christmas time to do that, people. Amazing. So that's why... I wanted to start today by explaining how the theory behind how it's all going to work when you hear about narratives and that kind of good stuff. So the soul training exercise for the week, you're very welcome to take a look at that orange page now if you like, is all about sleep. Because the number one enemy to spiritual formation, Jim Smith suggests, is exhaustion. 
And the focus of the chapter is to show how spiritual formation comes as a combination of our actions and our choices and God's action. And so we have to do something, but we also have to rely on God for what's needed to change. I don't know if I have a point about this or not. Anyway, it's just the soul, the soul training thing. So sleep is the perfect combination of discipline and grace because you can't make yourself go to sleep. You can surrender yourself to the attempt to sleep. You can create circumstances that are more beneficial to sleeping, and that's one of the things that the author talks about is ways to be intentional about that. But um, it's an act of trust. It is an act of trust that if you go to sleep and stop working on whatever it is that you're working on or doing whatever it is that you're doing, that God's going to take care of stuff and going to be there tomorrow morning. It's a really good one for me right now. I found there was a whole lot more things that I was concerned about after Gordy left than I thought there was than before he left. There was this whole list of stuff this week. And at a certain point, I just had to shut my computer and just go, it's okay. It's important. These are all important, but it's not urgent. It's okay. It's going to be all right. And um, it's acknowledging that you're not God because God never sleeps. So it's just saying, okay, you're God and I'm not. And one of the exercises is to try and carve out a day in your schedule this week to try and sleep as long as you possibly can. He's like, get babysitters. Work it out. Do what you can. See if you can do it. See how long your body actually sleeps if you let it sleep. Now, it might not be possible for everybody to do that. But it's a nice challenge if you can make it happen. Eight to ten hours, yeah. That's the, you do? Good for you. There are a lot of people here who do not get eight to ten hours of sleep every night, Kenny. That's why, that's why you're such a rock star. It's all that sleep. So these are the questions that um, came throughout the chapter this week. Let's see if that works. I don't know. Maybe I have to do that for me. And so um, they're, there in, they're there in your bulletin. I don't know why it's not working. So there's some different ones there. So I'll just, for the podcast, I'll, I'll simply recite that. I'll say them out loud here but they're written down there for you. So the first one is describe your own experience with trying and perhaps failing to change. Could it be the problem was not a lack of effort, but a lack of training? And explain that. The second question is, what comes to mind when you think about narratives that have formed your way of thinking about the world? The third one is, have you practiced spiritual exercises such as Bible reading, prayer, or solitude in your life? And if so, with what intention? Did you start them, and with what result came out of them? Uh, the fourth question is to meditate on what has been your experience in Christian fellowship or community. And the fifth one is to meditate on how you see the Holy Spirit interacting with the three other points of change. He actually had a diagram in his book, which I did actually wind up making this week, but it, there were a lot of different versions of notes and PowerPoints and things, but I can, I'll just tell it to you. You can visualize it. But he sees it like a triangle, where the Holy Spirit is the triangle at the center of this idea of change, with the idea of adjusting your narratives and adopting the narratives of Jesus, working on these practical exercises for your body and mind to meld together, and to being in community with other 
people who are also aiming for Christ-like. And the idea is that they're all meant to be something that's operating together with the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's the intro. So what do you think? What does that make you think about? Hot topics. Sandra, I saw your hand first. <laughs> 